Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Diffusion. Today we'll be delivering science to your brains like Peter Siddle delivers a ball of leather at the heads of English batsmen. And for you non-Australians or poms, I'm talking cricket. But to the science, and this week we're featuring the trials and tribulations of obtaining a PhD and why breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But first up, here's the news with Victoria Bond. <laughs> Scientists glimpse the universe before the Big Bang. The cosmic microwave background is the radiation that exists everywhere in the universe, thought to be left over from when the universe was only 300,000 years old. In the early 1990s, scientists discovered that the CMB temperature has anisotropes, meaning that the temperature fluctuates at the level of about one part per 100,000. These fluctuations provide one of the strongest pieces of observational evidence for the Big Bang theory. Since the tiny fluctuations are thought to have grown into the large scale structures that we see today, these fluctuations are considered to be random due to the period of inflation that is thought to have occurred in the fraction of a second after the Big Bang, which made the radiation nearly uniform. However, Penrose and Grzadian have now discovered concentric circles within the CMB in which the temperature variations is much lower than expected, implying that the CMB anisotropes are not completely random. The scientists think that these circles stem from the result of collisions between supermassive black holes that released huge, mostly isotropic bursts of energy. The bursts have more energy than the normal local variations in temperature. Now the strange part is that the scientists calculated that some of the larger of these nearly isotropic circles must have occurred in the time before the Big Bang. Now the discovery doesn't suggest that there wasn't a Big Bang, Rather, it supports the idea that there could have been many of them. The scientists explain that the CMB circles support the possibility that we live in a cyclic universe, in which the end of one eon, or universe, triggers another Big Bang to start the next eon, and the process repeats indefinitely. The black hole encounters that cause the circles likely occurred within the later stages of the eon right before ours, according to the scientists. What your mother always told you is true. Breakfast really is the most important meal of the day. In a world-first study conducted by the Menzies Research Institute in Tasmania, 
It has been shown that skipping breakfast over a long period of time may increase your risk of heart disease and diabetes. The new study was recently published online in the International Journal, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. I recently spoke to Menzies PhD student Kylie Smith about these results and started by asking her for a little bit of background on the study. I guess I guess the first uh, question that I that I'd ask you is just a, a bit of a background to this this study. How did you uh, go about uh, conducting this study? It seems like data was collected from an awful long time ago. Um, yeah, so in 1985, um, the Australian Schools Health and Fitness Survey was a nationally representative sample of seven to fifteen year old children. So everyone um, from from in all states and territories, and they answered a question on whether or not they usually ate something before school. And then 20 years later, in 2004 to 2006, we followed up um, quite a lot of these children when they were 26 to 36 years old. And was it difficult to track them down 20 years later? We had an amazing team <laughs> who did that um, because the original study wasn't meant to be a follow-up. So we, had, we only had names and the names of the children and the school they attended. Some children had dates of birth as well. And how many of them did you end up finding? Just under 2,500 of them. Out of about 8,000 people. Out so of um, 8,500 um, originally, yep. That's a, that's a pretty good record. And, and what, did you end up, uh, what did you end up finding? So we looked at those that skip breakfast both as a child and as an adult, and we found that those that skip breakfast at both time points had um, a larger waist circumference, so they're more likely to be overweight or obese. They also had a poorer diet. They were more likely to smoke and less likely to do physical activity. And they also had high levels of insulin and cholesterol in their blood, which are all risk factors for um, heart disease and diabetes. And do you attribute all this to not eating breakfast? I know it's always hard with correlations and cause and effect, but uh, is it all down to not eating breakfast or do people that not eat breakfast tend to eat more fatty foods? What do you think? We were able to adjust for diet quality and the other things I said, so the associations with cholesterol and insulin were um, independent of diet quality, socioeconomic status, um, also waist circumference. Um, so we think it is due to breakfast skipping, but we're not entirely sure, so more studies are needed to be done. And so how does breakfast do this? What does breakfast do for you that prevents cardiovascular issues and keeps your waist slim? We're not entirely sure. There's a couple of theories. Um, one is that people who skip breakfast are more likely to eat unhealthier foods later on um, mid-morning, which are more likely to be higher in fat and sugar and energy. Another theory is that if you don't eat something when you first get up, so your body hasn't even eaten any food for about 12 hours when you get up in the morning, and if you don't eat something to break the fast, um, it is possible that your metabolism may slow down and you may be more likely to store fat and have changes in glucose metabolism and and so what should we do about this? I must admit that I tend to skip breakfast about half the time, mainly because I like sleeping in and because I'm lazy. But is it a matter of just eating anything in the morning or or, uh, or, or what should I eat? I guess breakfast, cereal, milk, that sort of thing are generally pretty healthy anyway. Breakfast foods generally are healthy and there are things that you can choose that are quick to eat, such as a piece of fruit or a little tub of yogurt, something like that. So it doesn't have to be a time-consuming meal, but we think it's important to eat something early on for breakfast. 
And so was it different for different parts of the population, like males or females or for other socioeconomic uh, factors or perhaps if someone smoked or, or what industry they worked in? Uh, did you find anything like that? Um, those that were single were more likely to skip breakfast and those who were less educated as well. And you uh, collaborated with some interesting people on this study. I noticed uh, one of the supporting grants was from the Velolia Environmental Services, if I've said that correctly. What do environmental services want to do with this study? Um, they just help provide funding for the clinics, which we because they were in each state and territory, so we got a lot of... Um, it was quite an expensive study to run, so they were one of our sponsors. Um, you probably also noticed that Sanitarium was one of our sponsors but they had no input into the analysis or the data collection or anything like that. They were just providing the breakfast um, for the participants at the clinics. And, yeah, I don't think they even know that, well, they do now, but they didn't know that we were even doing the study. And this is all contributing to your PhD. When do you think you're going to finish that up? How's that going? Hoping to submit before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I guess you're probably too young to be involved in the 1985 study. Yeah, I was five. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was six, so I uh, missed it as well. So what next? You mentioned that some further research might be needed. Uh, what do you see going forward as the future for this stuff? We're hoping to keep following up um, these participants. So at the moment, we're just looking at risk factors for heart disease and diabetes. But if we can follow them up for a long enough period of time, then we'll be able to see actual events. So we'll be able to see if, for example, skipping breakfast um, increases your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. Okay. But, of course, all this is dependent on funding. Well, yeah, it's a massive study, isn't it? You don't see longitudinal studies over 20, 25 years very often that have 8,000 people in the first study and then 2,500 in the, in the next study. I guess the danger with, with this sort of study is that there's, uh, there's only two time points. So they might not have eaten breakfast back when they were younger and they might not have eaten breakfast yesterday or, or whatever the question asked. Uh, but in the meantime... In the middle of those two points, they might have uh, had some breakfast. So further study and some more time periods are needed. Yes, that's um, right. We only had measures at two time points, which was one of the limitations of our study. So hopefully if we can keep following them up at more regular time points, we'll be able to get better examples of what's really happening. So were people happy to be interviewed 20 years later? I know I would be, but I guess not everybody would be. Um, we had some people that um, said no, either because they weren't interested or they didn't have time quite a time commitment for the participants as well because for this we some could just complete the questionnaires but we also got some of them to come in for um, as many of them as we could to come in for actual tests so they had the fasting blood samples they also did fitness tests and had lots of measurements taken strength tests and things like that so it wasn't just people answering a survey, which is always a little bit dodgy. People might not answer uh, correctly. They might uh, say they had breakfast when they didn't actually have it just because they think that's what they should answer. But you've actually gone and measured their waists and measured their blood sugar and that sort of thing. Yes, yep. Yes, so we, had, um, we put out a press release a couple of weeks ago, and so we got some television coverage. And so <laughs> I think because it's such a simple message and people understand breakfast, it's... Um, People are finding it interesting. I guess one of your recommendations that you might have is just public health announcements. Eat breakfast, it's good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Kylie Smith from the Menzies Research Institute in Tasmania talking to me just after I forgot to have breakfast the other day. The Doctorate of Philosophy, more commonly called the PhD, is a level of academic achievement required for most high-level research and teaching jobs. 
Obtaining a PhD requires not just coursework, but also independent and groundbreaking research, the results of which are reported in the all-important thesis or dissertation. Lachlan Watmore spoke to recent postdoc Cassandra Mears and research scientist Bill Halford about the trials and tribulations of the PhD pathway. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers and me, all of us under its spell, we know Down through the years, I've found that you can have a lot of fun with doctors. God knows they can be a pompous, self-satisfied lot. One way that works for me is to tell a doctor all about the treatments my dad used to give me, from antibiotics to stitching up a gashed leg. And then, when the doctor asks me what type of doctor my dad was, I tell them he was a vet. The look on the doctor's face, absolutely priceless. Another way to have fun with a medico is to address them as Mr or Ms. Then, when they insist on being called doctor, ask them what their PhD thesis was on. Then, when they start to protest, say something like, no offence, mate, but go and slave your ass off for up to 10 years, come up with a brand new piece of information that's of benefit to the human race, and then I'll call you doctor. I know two people I'm delighted to address as doctor because they went and did just that. Dr Cassandra Mears was recently awarded her doctorate in media theory with an emphasis on internet art. I caught up with her recently as she was busy nursing her second thesis for the year, her brand new son, Deckard. Big mouth. Yeah, big mouth means open your mouth so you can get all my boob in. I began by asking Cassandra what led to her beginning a PhD. I did a, I did an undergraduate degree. I was a musician, lost a record deal and a publishing deal, in fact, in the same day, and um, had a kind of, you know, early life crisis and went, what the, what am I going to do? My father was right. I should have had a backup plan. Decided to go and do my HSC at TAFE, did that, and wanted to become a vet, and found that I was pretty good at science. Like, I was getting, you know, 85s and stuff, but I was getting, you know, 95s in all my humanity subject. So... It became pretty clear to me that my natural skills and talents lied with the humanities. So I decided not to do vet science and to do a media and communications degree, thinking I wanted to be a journalist. Did, went, got into UNSW media and communications, which was very prestigious at the time, and just was found myself very drawn to all the philosophy subjects and very drawn to media theory. What's up? But I, of course, I was doing, you know, well in all the production stuff, but it didn't really float my boat the way that the philosophy subjects did, and, you know, really intense media theory. So the natural kind of progression for someone with that skill set is academia because there's not many ways to apply, you know, abstract theory in the real world at that, certainly at that level. There are ways now, but they are tricky. You, are, you do kind of set yourself up for staying in that rarefied world of academia if you good at that so I decided okay so I'll do honours because that was the natural progression and my my tutors and lecturers were kind of advising me to do that and I didn't know how I wanted to apply it professionally at that point either so a PhD seemed you know a logical path. Bill Halford has been Dr Bill since the mid 90s when he received his PhD in immunology 
Bill's doctoral path differed significantly from Cassandra's because his was in the sciences, whereas hers was in the humanities. During my recent visit to the US of A, Bill and I sat down to discuss his becoming a doctor. In the spirit of trans-Pacific relations, we both agreed that this could only be done with plenty of beer. <coughs> I wanted to have more latitude mm-hmm. in whom I work for in the future. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and have more of a vote in terms of what I was actually working on. So, What prompted you to um, uh, get into your particular field of immunology? <coughs> I think the actual path you follow tends to be a bit random. Yeah. You know, that is, you sort of have a... A, a swath of uh, faculty in front of you to choose from, uh, and it really boils down to who who do you get along with best. And you know, I mean, obviously the research has to interest you, but it's sort of kind of a compromise. Um, in my case, I really liked what I was working on, so it worked out. It worked out just fine. But I think the reality for people in uh, graduate programs is that you know, once you get enrolled in the program, you really are just trying to find a path that seems sort of the most uh, Whatever, most suitable, most palatable, and that's where you go. Mm-hmm. So if there's somebody that you know studies uh, banana slug buttholes, um, you might become an expert in the study of banana slug buttholes in the process of getting your PhD. What are banana slugs, and why do they uh, ha- skip that? Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be bloody gold. So how does doing a PhD differ from other types of coursework? Cass Mears had some interesting insights. So I would have periods where, and because you spend so much time at home, I would spend weeks not getting out of my pyjamas, you know, and that is, that makes you strange. <laughs> and I, so I would spend weeks at a time, you know, working, working, you know, 17 hour days, 18 hour days, like just absolutely pedal to the metal, gunning it, got to get this done, got to get this chapter done, got to get it finished, got to get it finished. Because my, fortunately, my supervisor would impose got deadlines on me and I would really stick to them like they would become my own deadlines and I would really want to get it in by the time she would say you've got to have a chapter to me by now so otherwise if you don't if you can't create and stick to deadlines you will never finish a PhD and there is something like a 60% dropout rate of PhD candidates so 60% of people who enroll in PhDs drop out because really that high yeah Wow, 60%. And in fact, when I started the year I started, it was 90%. 90% of candidates the year before me had dropped out. But it is, I think it averages out at about 60% of people that start PhDs drop out of them. And it's primarily because you have to be able to, um, you have to be able to self-motivate. And that is a skill that you don't necessarily learn in any other environment other than things like big projects like PhDs. And in fact, a PhD is a very unique project and numerous people have said this to me since. You never do another th- another project like a PhD. It's a very, you know, strange monster. You do you only do this thing kind of once in your life, so you you really have to know how to make yourself work. So once you're enrolled in the PhD program and you're set on a particular path, it's a kind of feeling of relief that you finally found your niche and you know your your own particular pathway to follow, or is there a feeling of anxiety that you might have chosen better? Yeah, I think the relief comes more at the end, <laughs> at the end when you're done. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- there is certainly room to get onto paths that are uh, sort of going nowhere. Um, I-, I sort of uh, started off in graduate school working, whatever, for the chair of my um, department, who's a nice enough fellow, but you know, 
I think the bottom line is he was the chair of the department. He had other things to tend to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in particular uh, what, what gave me great pause was meeting some of his students who were quite bright but who were finishing their um, PhDs. There's three of them. They're all finishing in their ninth to tenth years. And basically I looked at them and thought, hmm, mm-hmm. am I really that much smarter or brighter than these people? And the answer was no. And so that, if you do the math, sort of like, hmm, how long will I be in graduate school in this person's lab? Hmm, probably nine or ten years. I don't think you're that dumb. Well, I'm not saying I'm that dumb. I'm saying these were very, very bright, very bright individuals, very capable. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, I sort of looked at that and mm-hmm. took, took a gulp and said, hmm, okay, let me find... <laughs> a different lab where maybe it won't take me nine or ten years. Um, so anyway, there, there's a little bit of trial and error in finding that place where you think you can do your studies and uh, come out of the back end without being completely hosed, uh, um, for lack of a better word. Uh, or broke. Yeah, just uh, or, or your spirit broken, whatever you want to call it. You know, I mean, if you're starting grad school and you're you know, 23, 24... And you're looking at nine or ten year prospect. That's <laughs> less than ideal. Because I mean, once you get done with grad school, you've still got another four or five years of training in front of you to do a postdoctoral fellowship before you really can look at actually getting a job. Once you've completed your PhD, it's time for postdoctoral work. The postdoctoral environment is quite different when you compare science with humanities. Postdocs are well; they serve two purposes. One is it's sort of a holding tank. Mm-hmm for people who have collected their PhDs right. and who are now entering the uh, competition for real jobs. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, maybe a skeptical way to look at it. Probably realistic, but skeptical nonetheless. Yeah. Um, but, but the other way to look at it, if you want to take the more optimistic outlook, is uh, so you make a bit more money as a postdoc than you do as a graduate student. Um, in particular, it gives you an opportunity to I guess train more to really become competitive, uh, either for an academic faculty position or an industry job. You know, that is, there's still a lot of, you know, one training experience in one place gives you more knowledge than none, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it doesn't give you sort of a breadth of experience and yeah. working in a couple of places. Um, so you hone your writing skills, you hone your research skills. You just you basically just become more competitive to actually yeah, cool. get out in the job market. With postdoc fellowships, you're usually working in a group. So you're usually working, you're very rarely postdocs, because postdocs are very hard to get. They're very rare. You, they're like hand tape. And um, they're very prestigious, very super prestigious to get a postdoc fellowship. Um, and they're quite well paid and you're usually working in a group you very rarely because you're still a bit of a junior academic you very rarely get to host a complete project by yourself your postdoc is usually an aspect of a greater ARC project this is certainly how it works in humanities I'm not it's probably different in sciences but in the humanities yeah you have to um, you're usually in a part of a bigger ARC Australian Research Centre which is uh, the government body that kind of funds research projects so in, at the end of the day to put it into dollars and cents yeah. you could earn a crust teach you, you you're more likely to earn a crust teaching yeah yep okay. as depressing as that is to me at the moment <laughs> <laughs> 
So whether you end up teaching in a university and simultaneously doing vaccine research, or having a baby and simultaneously thinking about teaching in a university, the completion of a Doctorate of Philosophy is a monumental and life-changing piece of work. I'd like to play a little musical tribute to Bill and Cass and every other PhD that we at Diffusion have had the pleasure of meeting. Ladies and gentlemen, the late, great Anthony Newley. The doctor's very smart. He's an Irishman at heart. His favourite colour, sure, it must be green. And also he's a man who'll blarney when he can. Let me explain the sort of thing I mean. My friend the doctor says the moon is made of apple pie And once a month it's eaten by the sun And that is why up in the sky you'll find as every month goes by Somebody in the sky is making another one My friend the doctor says the sun is made of cheddar cheese The doctor even knows the reason why The facts are these, try if you please pretending you're a lonely cheese Wouldn't you want to try finding an apple pie? Of course you would. Maybe what the doctor tells me isn't altogether true. But I love every tale he tells me. I don't know any better ones. Do you? My friend the doctor says the world is full of fantasy. And who are you and I to disagree? Let's hope and pray that is the way The life we love will always stay for my friend The doctor and me My friend the doctor says The stars are made of lemon drops The bigger ones are lollipops And ice, come on The clouds have shops up on the top That sells you sweets and soda pops What do they call the place? Isn't it paradise? That was Lachlan Watmore talking to Dr. Bill Halford and Dr. Cassandra Mears about how you really get to be called doctor. Now, I think, Victoria, you probably have something to say about that. Thanks a lot, Lachlan. That meant wonders. I love you, Vic. And whilst I allow my two colleagues here to go and feud, that's about all the time we have in this week's edition of the Diffusion Science Radio Show. If you'd like to get in contact with us, if you'd like to subscribe to the podcast or leave a comment, get over to diffusionradio.com. That's diffusionradio.com. And you can email us at diffusion at 2SER.com. Diffusion is broadcast out of Sydney on 2SER 107.3, across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and across the world on the podcast. Today's show was produced by Victoria Bond with added chocolate from Lachlan Watmore. I'm Mark West. See you next week when hopefully Australia is one up in the cricket on Diffusion Science Radio.